Father, we thank You for the marvelous privilege of knowing You. We thank You for the opportunity to experience Your grace and Your forgiveness. God, we also know that, Lord, as we see the devastation and the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Haiti, that, Lord, Your primary means and mechanism of ministering Your grace and dispensing Your love of meeting their needs is done through Your children, is done through Your people. So, Lord, as we hear that call, we ask that You would convict our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning for those who are here this morning who are in a devastation time of their own, who are in need of hope, who are in need of grace. I pray this morning, God, that You would dispense Your hope and grace in a way that can only be described, it was God. So, Lord, we ask right now that you would speak to us. And you would open the eyes of our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Hosea, chapter 3, here in just a moment, which is a very, very complex book. But we're going to look at just three verses here in just a moment. But let me ask you a question this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where what you needed more than anything else at that time was grace? You need to experience love. You had either blown it, made a mistake, or you had experienced the pain from someone else's mistake, or it was just a time in your life where you needed to just be loved. You needed to feel the arms of God wrapped around you. You needed to feel the arms of someone else to hug you and tell you, you're going to make it. I want to give you a glimpse of hope. Maybe you're in that position today. Maybe you're here needing hope today. Maybe you've made some mistakes in your life. Maybe you are in that time of your life. I asked Tommy King to come and just share a brief testimony of a time in his life where that was true, where his wonderful wife, Vaughn, had to dispense some grace with some boundaries. But I want you to hear that story. Tommy? Thanks, Fred. Some of you have already, uh, some of you already know and have already heard about my testimony, and some of you may not. So for those of you who do not, this may come as a shock and surprise, so i give you forewarning before I unleash all of this on you real quick. Um, let me give you a little bit of background before I tell you what my wife did, and then it'll make, I think it'll make a little more sense. Um, I grew up probably from the age of nine, which is really young, but at the age of nine, I got a hold of some pornography. And I got hooked at the age of nine on pornography and struggled with it from the age of nine up until when I was married. I got married at 21. And for years, years, it, it seemed as if I was in this spiraling cycle going downward of sin. You know, believer, I was a believer. I was saved at nine. It's funny that I got saved and then right after I got saved, boom, here comes. 
becomes a pornography right after that. So it's wonderful, wonderfully crazy how the enemy seeks, as the word says, to devour God's children and how he wants to devour all of us here on the earth. He just wants to take you know, take as many down with him as he, as he can. But I uh, got hooked on pornography and was struggling with it so much that even within my marriage, you know, because you think, oh, I'll get married, you know, that I've got this this wonderful marriage bed in which is blessed of the Lord and I can engage in this and this won't be an issue. Not, that was not the situation. When you're hooked, you're hooked. And unfortunately for me, I kept spiraling even in my marriage to the point to where I was not even going into work. I would call it sick. And I was telling the previous service what my wife thought. She just thought I was a lazy bum because she didn't even know what was going on. But I would stay home and all day long I would just spend on the internet just searching and searching and searching and going through magazines and stuff and just on it all day long. Psalms 32, David makes a statement which he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He uses a word iniquity in that passage, which to me just seems to really encapsulate the whole idea of what I was going through, that in that iniquity, that dirt that was within, deep within, deep-seated, rooted, you know, just seemed to just have gotten a foothold and anchored in and just stayed right there. And as much as I loved the Lord, I was struggling with it in my flesh. And it was a difficult thing for me to let go. Uh, I was not, I'm not an overt kind of a guy, I'm more covert, you know, and that's exactly what my sin was, it was more covert. I was high-functioning. Just like some other addicts where you could be so high functioning that you could go to work, work a full day, everything would seem to be fine. You could take care of all the business you need to take care of. But then on the inside, on the back end, when no one else sees, what's happening is there's this addiction that's just ravaging the person without anyone else knowing it. And to me, that seems to be probably even one of the worst ones, the ones that are more covert than overt. At least the overt ones you can see. The covert ones tend to... You know, behind closed doors, no one knows, so no one can reach out and give help. Well, one day she caught me in the process of doing this. And so when she caught me in that process, she was shocked, she was upset, she was hurt, she was wounded. And I'm sure, as probably many of you and some of you may know, you know usually the first thing you think is, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, as a lady, you may be thinking, what's wrong with me? What did I do? You know, am I not woman enough? And it had nothing to do with that. Pornography is not the kind of thing in which it's, where it has anything, anything to do with the person you're with. It has everything to do with something that's missing. You're trying to get a pseudo thing. You're trying to replace it with an imitation. You know? And if you're like me, I, I don't like imitation sugar. I don't like imitation butter. You know, you know when they put that little imitation butter stuff like on popcorn, you know, and is it, no, I want real. I want the real thing. Give me the butter with the salt. Give me the real sugar, the sugar in the raw, you know, because that's the good stuff. And the funny thing is, is that within that same context, what I needed was the real love. What I was seeking is a real love. And there's a passage that the Lord had brought to me that just really just screamed to what my bond, what my wonderful wife Vaughn did for me. My honeybee, I call her honeybee. In 1 Peter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. In 
And what she did was she didn't kick it to the side, just as Ron said. She didn't dismiss it. She didn't just say, oh, baby, that, that's okay. You don't have to worry about it. That's not what she did. She, she lovingly held me accountable. And that's the beauty of that accountability, that when it's encouched on the foundation of love, it creates an atmosphere where healing can happen. And she loved me deeply, just as the scripture said. She loved me deeply. Did I say she loved me deeply? She loved me deeply. And as a result of her loving me deeply, it's like that ointment that goes on the wound that begins to bring healing. You know? It causes all that damage, all that pain, all that frustration, all the guilt, all the hurt, the things that were set up long before she even met me. That love was just covering. Just covering. Healing. And so through that gracious act that she did. And it's wonderful because it's even, even the same passage also has another part where it says that anyone who has a gift that they've received should serve others faithfully. Administering God's grace in its various forms. And it says if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. Because I can tell you right now that only God can give my wife, the love that she had for me that was so deep that she could apply it to the hurt that I had to cover the multitude of my sin. She modeled the very same thing that Christ did for us. So, I wanted to share that with you. Hopefully that's a blessing to you. You know, Hopefully it makes sense. That, that very thing that I was going through if it's something you're going through, if it's another issue, it doesn't have to be pornography. That loving deeply, with accountability, the grace that only God can give, the strength that only God can provide, can bring healing when it's couched in the right situation, when both folks are on the same page, seeking to truly be healed and have freedom. As Tommy shared and indicated, uh, let me tell you what grace and forgiveness is not. Because sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what grace and forgiveness might look like. Sometimes people demand or try to browbeat you with the recognition or the requirement of grace. And let me tell you what it's not. Grace and forgiveness is not suffering and silence. It's not simply, I'm just going to forget anything ever happened in life. It's not, I'm just going to make up excuses. Well, you know, they did this, they did that, and maybe it was, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, where you come up with enough excuses that you excuse it. And it's certainly not setting boundaries. Tommy talked about how Vaughn brought him in and, and they set some boundaries in their marriage and they set some boundaries around this issue. And I don't think we can really ask for grace and forgiveness. We're, our heart's not ready to ask for grace and forgiveness if we're not ready to accept boundaries. That's part of it. Okay? So that's a very uh, realistic and very acceptable aspect, which is called boundaries. When we seek to love someone and restore them, setting boundaries is loving for them. And it doesn't mean that we won't take steps to make sure that the situation 
doesn't occur again. Matter of fact, it means that we will take whatever steps are necessary. We won't just simply try to handle it all by ourselves. So don't be misled in what forgiveness is and what grace is. It, it is offering freedom. It is being realistic. It is being responsible. It is sharing in the pain. It is, though, not retaliating. That I'm going to get even and I'm going to make you pay. That's not forgiveness. That's certainly not grace. And that's not, that will not bring about restoration. It's the message that we will get in our heads and it, everything in us will scream, retaliate, retaliate. But what God does and what He does in this book of Hosea is He gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to experience grace and forgiveness. And it really, it's really an object lesson that God is giving us here. He uses a, a historical story to show us the picture. It's literally an outline of the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness to God Almighty. How repeatedly... God will restore them and then they will be unfaithful. They will chase after other gods. They will chase after their sin, so to speak. And it repeatedly occurs again and again and again. And God has made a covenant with them in the book of Genesis. But yet, He continually finds His people unfaithful. There are three major players that we're going to see here in just a moment. First of all, there's Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom. We really don't have a lot of prophets in the northern kingdom. Most of them come out of Judah. And he's a prophet at this time. And he, uh, what we would maybe call a preacher today. He's proclaiming the message in a time that is just really de degenerating. I don't know a better way to, to say it. It is simply uh, just void of a lot of moral fiber and certainly of an honor and respect for God. It's an affluent time. It's a time where things seem to be going somewhat well, but where people are leaving and falling away or at least ignoring the Word of God and the covenant that He has made with them. And Hosea is preaching a tough message. Hosea is the... He's the first of the minor prophets. When I say minor prophets, it doesn't mean he's a minor guy and he's not that important. It's simply it's talking about the volume of work that we have. And he's the first of the minor prophets. And he's speaking this hard word and he's preaching to his people a very, very difficult message that they don't want to hear. And meanwhile, at home, there's Gomer. He and Gomer have had three children. He and Gomer probably have had some tough times and some tough conversations, but there must have been a point where they had fallen in love and become married and had all the dreams that every other couple would have. But now he starts to find out that she is not just having an affair, but she's had multiple affairs. Maybe it started where she was gone for a few hours and then one night, and then she's probably even left for days at a time. Wondering where she is. Here's Hosea trying to maintain things, preach the message, and he's got children who, ironically, he's not even sure they're his. And then one day, Gomer is gone. She's decided to leave. Maybe she got that opportunity and she thought, you know, if I could just find real love, 
And this guy says he loves me. This is an opportunity. I'm going to go away. And so she takes off. And maybe at first it seemed great, but then things start to unravel. And that guy that she's thought that loved her so much really comes to that place and says, Hey, you know, I don't know that I can afford to keep you. <clears throat> I don't know that I can support both of us. I mean, you're great and all, and I'd love for you to stay here, but I, I kind of need to work out a deal here. And I tell you what, I, if you will kind of be a bond servant, I, I think that would give me some money. I, I'll, I can give you some money. I can pay you. You can take care of yourself. and We'll still be together. But that's not how it turns out. She somehow, and we don't have all the history behind this, sells herself and becomes a, a slave, so to speak. And that love that she thought she was pursuing is not there in any manner. As a matter of fact, she finds the opposite. Probably so disgusted with herself, feeling so full of shame that the thought of ever returning never entered her mind. Some of the language in chapter 2 seems to indicate that at a minimum there was separation, perhaps even divorce that occurred. And I'm sure she lived every day with regret. And then God comes on the scene. God has been using Hosea to make an impact. God has been speaking to Hosea, but now He asks Hosea to probably do the most difficult thing that He's ever asked Hosea to do. I want you to go back and get your wife. That's where we pick up right here in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. This woman who has been unfaithful, who has left you, who has left her children, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. There's, there's an analogy being built. There's a picture being given of the nation of Israel and how they've been un, unfaithful. And you see that term right there um, as they love the sacred raisin cakes. That, that was something that would be given as an offering to the Canaanite, Canaanite deities. Uh, as a matter of fact, what really happened is that was usually used as an aphrodisiac and they would let allow sex to be a part of their worship. So they would go into temple prostitutes, and they would call that their worship experience. And, um, you know, when you get that depraved, you can just kind of make what you want worship. You know what I mean? You can just kind of rewrite all the rules and just kind of make it your own way, and that's what they've done. And so that's what God is crying out to them, saying, return to your covenant. Return to your relationship. In essence, return to the marriage you have with me. The covenant that we agreed with. The covenant which I made with you and you made with me. Verse 2. God says, I want you to go and get her back. And what's interesting, it's not a matter of just going it back. Because now, He no longer has rights to her. She has sold herself. It says this, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and 10 bushels of barley. Now, 30 shekels of silver was pretty much the standard price for an average slave. If you had a great slave, um, you'd get much more. And if you had a great prostitute, uh, it was much more than that. But she has had some hard years. She has certainly been through the ringer. She is probably frail. 
Her eyes are hollow. She is aged way beyond her actual age. And here she is, probably not even able to lift up her head, not realizing who's bidding. Maybe the bidding starts at five. You know, maybe she can, maybe she can just kind of watch my kids sometimes. Six shekels. I'll give you six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And then finally somebody says, I'll give you fifteen. I'm sure people looked around. Fifteen for her? And a ten bushels of barley. Barley was the bread for the poor that the poor usually had. And it was a staple in that economy. Which probably indicates that Hosea is giving everything that he has. So he comes with the fifteen shekels and the ten bushels of barley. And basically, what does he do? He buys her back. She has done nothing to merit this. She's done nothing but bring pain and suffering to her family. She has abandoned them and left them and left with someone else. But yet, God calls Hosea to do the most difficult thing he will ever be asked to do, to go back. So the next time you think you're married to a difficult person, you think, but my situation's so bad. I, I just encourage you to read the book of Hosea, okay? And I would just say, has that person left your kids? <laughs> Have they become a prostitute? And everybody knows it. And here's Hosea taking his wife back amid his friends and his family. They all know what she's done. She's been shamed. But yet he takes her back. And the Bible says, Then I told her, Hosea speaking here to Gomer, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Uh, you can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, there's more going on there. Part of what's going on is it's not just you're going to come and be with me, and you're going to stay at the house, but you're going to come and you're going to wait. We're going to wait, and restoration is going to come about while we wait. And I want you to wait, and I want you to stay here, basically in the house, and not to leave. But then there's a beautiful part there. He says, and, and I will stay with you. You know, I, we don't know exactly how everything turns out in the end. I don't have a big bow to tie on this for you, but I can tell you this. I am moved and stirred when I see that kind of grace that can only come from God Almighty. There are those of you in here who have both dispensed and received grace. You know, I think about the story of Tom Winters who was killed not even a year ago at a church in Maryland. He was a pastor. He was standing up preaching and some disturbed gentleman who had, he had talked to a couple times before in the middle of the service uh, or excuse me, out of service, shoots him and kills him. And then here's his wife and his children. And they're interviewing her the week later. CBS is doing an interview and they said, what do you feel? What do you feel toward him? Are you, are you angry? Do you want to see him get the death penalty? What do you want to see? And, and she says, no. She goes, I, I, I forgive him. I hurt and I am desperately suffering. But my daughter and I have chosen to forgive. And so we're praying that God will touch his heart and change his life. And it won't bring my husband back. But I know if my husband were here, he would say, forgive. 
hey, that didn't eliminate the penalty. It didn't eliminate the prison sentence. It didn't eliminate the suffering. But it produced freedom for them. It produced a real faith and a real testimony. Just as we see right here. So the real testimony is not that our marriage is so easy. That it's so good. Look at us. The real testimony is this, that when that day comes, when that time comes, and there are multiple, when those moments come that you feel completely right and completely vindicated to trample, to simply beat up, to retaliate, that you choose to dispense grace. Not grace without boundaries, not forgiveness without understanding, without explanation, but that you choose not to retaliate. You choose to love. And there may be consequences for those decisions, but it's all in the attitude of the heart. And it has to come from God Almighty because everything in our natural flesh will scream, kill, kill, kill. Hurt, hurt, hurt. Even, get even, get even. Destroy, destroy, destroy. This is what God says. Go and show your love to your wife again. Your husband again. Hey, maybe you're here this morning. You go, I'm single. What good does that do me? I've been there, done that. Thank you very much. Or... You don't understand where we are right now. I I would say this. That God wants to bless the broken road that you're on right now. That He wants to use whatever experience, whatever situation, whatever time in your life is for you to encounter Him in a way that you've not before. He wants to meet you on this broken road. And He wants to reveal Himself. He wants you to come back to Him. The question is not, is God speaking? But are we listening and will we respond? Let's pray this morning. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. God, I pray that You would speak to the hearts that are here this morning. For those, Father, who are in the pains and suffering of post-divorce, I pray, God, that You would minister grace to them. And I pray, Lord, that even as this song is sung, that, Lord, they would receive from You ministry. God, that give them a hope for the future. Lord, as Leanne sings this, as she has lived this song, lived through the pain and the suffering, lived through, done everything that one could do biblically, and yet things still fall apart. God, I pray that You would minister that grace to them and hope. For those, Father, who are struggling right now today, God, I pray that they would cover in their heart to begin again. And one of those things might be, to, this time next week, to be in this class, in this marriage class that we're offering. To learn the skills, to be able to communicate, to be able to work through issues, and to be able to connect. We know that Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and he wants nothing more than to destroy our relationship with our spouse Lord, You want to give us life. You want to breathe new life. Not to repeat the same patterns, but to give hope and a future. 
And Lord, we know that you specialize when things are dead of making things new. So Lord, I pray for rebirth. Rebirth in relationships, rebirth in marriage today. And God, for those who are just become apathetic, I pray, God, that you would instill importance of giving time and effort into their marriage. And Lord, if we can help as a church, Lord, I pray that they would make that step and not suffer silently, but allow us to come alongside and help them in the process of growing and renewing. We thank you for this time. In your name I pray. Amen.